Welcome to Inside Scoop with Sean Emery. Every week we are examining something new, bringing you closer to companies, sectors, and themes. This recording should not be construed as a substitute for personalized individual advice from Avery and Company or any guest on the show. This is for educational purposes only and not intended to make an offer or solicitation for any companies or securities mentioned. With that, let's get on with the episode. All right, we're here with Seth Golden. Seth, how you doing? I'm doing well, trying to hunker down for this uh, hurricane on our on our back steps right now. <laughs> yeah, I had a I had a 10 minute uh, uh no power last night. Um and I hopefully that's the the worst of any of it. I, I woke up sweating, so I knew there was something wrong. I have two kids. <laughs> Uh, so when the sound machines go off and um, <laughs> my fan stops working and I hear just wind, uh, it was kind of right. spooky, to be honest with you. It's been a long time since my house has been kind of dead silent in the middle of the night. Um, yep. But it's, it's it's creeping your way. So hopefully uh, you are prepared. Yeah, I'm and- hoping that it dies down a bit before it gets over gets over me. But uh, like we're we're right smack in the kind of the north central uh, area of Florida. So which is in the, you know, in the path, in the cone, if you will. But hopefully it. You know, goes from a, a three down to a one by it gets to me and I've, I've I've been through a hurricane Andrew in 19 in the, in the 1990s so I, I can get through this one you know that was whew, that was one where it was and you thought for a second there okay uh, you know uh, at least I'll see a smiling face when I get to heaven <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> right that was I think 92 inflation yeah. was running what then <laughs> maybe two three percent a lot okay. lower than today yeah, I think a couple of years before that, uh, inflation hit five percent. Yeah, and uh, and then they were cutting rates, um, and inflation took care of itself, which is uh, pretty interesting times to say the least. You know, having you on here and, and switching to kind of do it, you know, um, you're a veteran in the space, and and uh, you and I kind of dialogue uh, what seems to be more and more frequently um, via Twitter. So you can obviously follow yeah. both of us and get some interesting insights. We kind of I think cross paths in terms of mindset uh, from time to time, and. Uh, I don't know if it's Twitter uh, showing that to us and, and kind of, you know, saying, hey, you guys are saying the same thing or similar yeah, things. Those, and those Twitter algorithms work nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it's definitely interesting to see. So today I wanted to really bring you on. Um, you know, you lead the the Finum group um, and essentially, you know, your backdrop is really around macro, volatility, mm-hmm. yeah. derivatives, uh, and kind of the construct of, of volatility in general. My background is much more around, you know, call it the micro, the company-specific fundamentals of business and, and industries. Um, not that we don't kind of overlap in terms of our experience and education, but uh, it's really to have a dialogue around a couple different pillars, which is, you know, um, the current state of inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's I think there's so many interesting ways to look at it, whether it's, you know, we've historically focused on kind of PCE. All of a sudden, we're focused on PCI or CPI. Um, and then there's other ways to cut it. And then there's kind of high frequency data that says one thing potentially, and, uh, the actual reports that say another, um, and kind of that's step one. And then as we think about it, you know, going through the journey, the economy, the shape that it's in, should we enter any sort of economic, uh, uncertainty or more uncertainty sentiment, how that feels today and any data around that, you know, valuations, I think that's always important in general, but looking at it, a, a much broader view. Uh, and then, you know, the Fed, I think the, we'll, we'll leave it for last is, you know, can they, can they pause? Do they keep going? Do they, are they a freight train going right through it? Or are they this hurricane that, you know, once it hits land, it turns <laughs> into a one and troubles the storm and, and goes away. Um, yeah. And then anything else? And we'll just go from there. So you know, I'll, I'll pull up um, uh, a chart. And okay. I think uh, for, for the, for the purpose of this is, is here, which is, you know, I, I find it fascinating that 
the Fed historically, you know, for the last, I think, two decades, maybe three, has focused on PCE uh, as a mechanism to, first, they forecast it, right? Yeah, we're right. hearing everything around CPI. CPI. Yeah. yeah, And I don't know what your initial thoughts are. You know, 2023, I think they have a sub 3% uh, PCE inflation reading. Uh, there's different ways of, of breaking down the two uh, reports and indices, and I'll, I'll share some of that. But your, your headline view or, or thoughts around, you know, inflation more broadly. Okay. Yeah. So just like you, I mean, I cut my teeth on fundamental analysis, macroeconomic analysis uh, in my earlier years, uh, mainly because I can't see color and charting for me was just going to be a nightmare because all platforms have, you know, charts in various colors. And, you know, I, I'm, I got my first degree in English education, so I'm a good reader. So I can read 10 K, you know, filings and all the different, um, uh, transcripts from quarterly reports and everything. So that's how I, you know, got um, a broader perspective on investing and the business cycles. Um, from an inflation standpoint, yeah, absolutely right. You know, Fed for the last couple of decades, 25 years, trying to get inflation into this economy, um, whereby technology was broadly um, siphoning it out year after year after year through technological advances. We just you know, I don't need a Rolodex. I don't need a landline phone. You think of all the things that you used to have to, you know, buy a, a, as a as a goods that you don't need anymore. They're being supplanted by services that are less costly. So for the last 25 years, the Fed is trying to generate some degree of uh, inflation and uh, price to, pricing power for the vendors, the wholesalers, and the and the um, retailers, and they just couldn't do it. And looking at the PCE, the reality is the PCE. Um, kind of differentiating PCE versus uh, the CPI, the consumer price index, um, you get a big distortion there because for the most part, we all at some point will have medical costs, especially as we get younger with time. Obviously, we don't get younger with time. We get older and we get more really medical costs. I guess that was just wishful thinking <laughs> on my part that I'll do. I'll be the first Benjamin Button in real life, right? <laughs> um, but the PCE, um, that healthcare component is almost non-existent. Um, whereas in the CPI, it plays a bigger role. So you tend to see better readings in the in the PCE than you do in the CPI. And we're, we're at that place in, in time where we finally have inflation, too much inflation. And, you know, now we're, you know, we have to stomp it out for, you know, to get price equilibrium in the economy. I do tend to agree with the Fed so far as, um, you know, that is a utmost importance. If we don't deal with inflation today, it'll have ramifications for decades down the line. Um, but where is that optimal point? You know, is it 2%, the Fed's target rate, or is it 3% now? I mean, if we look at all the fiscal policy initiatives that help to generate this type of inflation, you know, forget about the supply lines for a second. You know, it's, it's not just that the Fed's easy policy uh, contributed to it. It's also on the fiscal side. I mean, we got checks from the government for months on end, it seemed, during the pandemic. And we couldn't really use them. So they went into our savings accounts and checkings accounts. And now we literally have 4X, any time in history, the average checking account, you know, the data that we, we can um, aggregate from JP Morgan or Chase Bank or Bank of America, uh, the average household checking account and savings account is 4X any other time in history. So of course, you know that was fiscal policy side of generating this kind of inflation. And that savings doesn't go away right away. And to the extent that the Fed is trying to stamp it down, 
um, you're actually going to get to a mean reversion point in those checking and savings account that is still higher than where we were in the past 20, 30, and 40 year period. So if we look at inflation, what is the ideal target rate for the Fed? Should it be back to where it was pre-pandemic when savings and checkings are much higher and where wages are much higher? Or should it be somewhere around 3%? Um, not forgetting that in 2019, the Fed adjusted its target inflation rate from 2% to an average of 2%. You know, they would like to see it above 2% for a certain period of time and below 2%. And so it would be an average. Now, nobody ever defined how much time above or below would constitute the average, which I thought was funny in and of itself. Um, but here we are now seeing the Fed talk tough, getting back to the prior mandate of 2%. So I look at it from the standpoint of we'll fix it. You know, in, in time, these things work themselves out. They feel... You know, as an investor or as a trader, they feel very arduous and it's a it's a daunting uh, time for investors. Um, and, you know, the lower uh, income decile households are having a tough time with inflation as well. But, you know, these kinds of economic business cycles work themselves out over time. This is not going to be the thing that creates the zombie apocalypse, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um I have an interesting, you know, point that I tried to make, I think like a week ago, which was like PCE versus CPI. And I, I find it just like, this is a tweet that I made, but it, it's pretty archaic in terms of how some of the stuff is calculated, uh, where, yeah. you know, C, CPI is taking a basket from two years ago, constructing mm -hmm. it, and then revisiting it every two years. And, you know, I think that works normally, um, where, you know, growth is at one, 2%, and, you know, inflation is at one, 2%. And, you kind of get this, you know, steady as she goes, uh, right. you know, cruise ship moving down the ocean. Right. Um, but it's really when you actually need it the most that these this practice doesn't work where, you know, PCE is updated, you know, frequently, much more frequently in terms of monthly as opposed to yearly. I mean, uh, biannually. Um, and, you know, I think that distorts a lot of things because, if, again, fast or, or backtrack, you know, two and a half years ago now because we're still in that biannual period. Um what were we spending on? And all that is being weight adjusted in these indices. And it's partially probably why we have this 2% gap between the two. Right. Um, but it's also probably why the Fed shifted partially to moving to a PCE focused metric as opposed to a CPI. I find it strange that, you know, again, your goal is PCE, you're talking CPI. Right. Um, in the back of my brain, I think political stuff, you know, we're here. Uh, and we've tried to think about it internally, which is, you know, November is the elections and, and you know, at the at the heart. And, and again, hopefully there's no none of this influence inside. Um, but it's more around, you know, I think I try to think of both sides, which is, you know, if if um, if if CPI is rising um, and you're not making tangible efforts to control it, which you should be, um, but making sure that it's, you know, there's 100 percent dedication to it and there's no wiggle room at all. Some will call that, you know, credibility. Um and then the other side, which is really around, you know, uh, well, let's squash it because, you know, if, if you if you uh, if, if you go too aggressive in terms of squashing inflation, well, either way is a win win. Right. Um, for for that side. And again, I'm not trying to bring we're like pretty apolitical here, but uh, it's more thinking about, you know, how why you think two point eight percent inflation is around the corner in terms of PCE, why you're focusing on it yet talking CPI. Um, so it's just an interesting concept and, and maybe yeah. something to to, uh, to to chew on for a little bit. Um, now, I think. And again, I've seen some of your charts as well. I think we both tweeted this chart recently, which is really mm -hmm. around apartment lists. So one of the stickier points of inflation has really been, uh, you know, home housing inflation. It's 
pretty obvious, you know, if you are tracking any sort of data that a lot of this stuff has been decelerating and or outright declining recently. Uh, you know, apartment list just updated their numbers yesterday, I believe. Yeah. Um, and just any findings like uh, your takeaway, I saw you tweeted about it again. I think I tweeted about it as well. And uh, something that we've been tracking, but, but general takeaways on like housing and, and some other in, uh, inflation indicators that you think uh, are positives. Um, the one big positive because the housing component and owner's equivalent rent component of CPI are just agree. They, they work with an egregious lag. And the question, like, it's a survey, right? It's a survey. They literally will ask a homeowner, what do you think you can achieve if you put your house on the market for rent? Now, homeowners know generally you know, about what it would be. You know, They have neighbors maybe that have rented or just in the area that they live. But that's how they surmise the, the owner's equivalent rent component in CPI, which to me is extremely archaic. You know, superficial or archaic, if you will. I, I just It's so demonstrative to do it that way, I think, um, to the credibility of the CPI report. Right. And I, I've done some research on so far as uh, the biggest problem is, is not just how the survey um, is, is offered and how the data is gathered, but the lag time. The lag time between, um, you know, the, the the deflationary impacts can be upwards of six months uh, before it's actually reflected in the CPI. Uh, the positive, finally, um, they realize this. There's actually going to be an adjustment come January 2023 CPI report. They are making an inclusion. They're gonna. There's a new methodology that they're going to be using. They tested it um, from 2013 to 2016's data. Because that was one of the more stable, monotone periods of economic activity in the U.S., you know, going back to 10 years and past the point of uh, the impacts from the great financial crisis. And what they found is that um, it would actually shave off about a quarter uh, percent in that owner's equivalent rent using this method methodology. So, uh, you know, the central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve, the government, uh, statistic census bureau, they know there's a problem with that key line item so far as owner's equivalent rent. I'm of the opinion that we started to see the rollover on a month over month basis, because that's what everybody's focused on this point. It's month over month, year over year, that'll take care of itself. But month over month is going to capture the rate of change. A lot of people get confused. They think, well, prices are still going up on a year over year basis. How can CPI go down? And CPI doesn't ca uh, capture uh, whether prices are going up or down. They're, it's capturing the rate of change in price. Uh, to your point or earlier, if you look back two years, there's not a lot of volatility in price. Um, but in, in real time, you get some of that rate of change. And as you get the de deflationary spiral, you'll see a bigger impact in owner's equivalent rent. By my account, I'm thinking the December uh, CPI will show. The unfortunate thing there is that we'll get the December CPI win in sure. January of the next year. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see exactly um, how this whole new calculation is going to impact, you know, the January CPI. Um, but that is the biggest thing when it comes to, I mean, it's 30%. The housing component um, or shelter and owner's equivalent rent are 31% of CPI. Uh, everybody was expecting a bigger drop in CPI for the August report because of commodity price deflation, because of gasoline prices and crude, all of the energy components going down, the soft commodities going down. Um, Mannheim used car index also, we see that going down, uh, now it's down on a year over year basis, not just every month, but we're actually have lower used car prices than we did a year ago. Um, yeah, there, yeah. Beautiful chart there. 
yes. the only problem. I'm sorry. Yeah, just you know, just to highlight the chart, just in case most people are going to be listening, we're showing the Mannheim index uh, versus the CPI uh, component of used vehicles, and you can see this huge gap. He right. tweeted about it. I've tweeted about it. Uh, this is fun strats, I believe original, but yeah. uh, in general, it's essentially just showing Mannheim. And there's this huge gap that mm-hmm. um, historically has been filled. And historically, right. it's CPI catching up to the Mannheim as opposed Correct. to Mannheim catching up to CPI, which ultimately means uh, you know this should come down the pipe at some point and become not only a decelerating positive CPI reading, meaning uh, less positive, but uh, actual outright deflation, I guess, uh, yeah. on a month over month basis. In-, in theory, year over year, right? I think that's what you were just alluding to. Correct. So it's now it. down year over year as of the September, mid-September update. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing about CPI is um, week two to week two. So, I mean, we've been seeing used cars, the Mannheim used car index going down pretty consistently. But when you look back at the last CPI report, it's only down 0.1%. That used car component was only down 0.1%. I was saying, how is this possible? Um, I, so I did a little bit more research and uh, found out that it's not going to capture the whole month um, of that used component. So we should actually see the used car component fully capture what has happened uh, as of the August report, let alone the two weeks into September. Biden, so we, if you see a bigger decline in uh, Mannheim, or I'm sorry, the used, used uh, car prices component, when the September CPI report comes out, it'll basically validate the lag in that report as well. So yeah, there's well, a lot of deflationary I mean, I get it. People were looking forward to this last one and saying, this is going to be the big CPI report where we get it and markets are going to turn around. The Fed won't have to, you know, be as hawkish. Um, And now we're all looking to the next one. Yeah, for sure. There's what's interesting, too, is you can look at wholesale prices to try to figure out what, uh, you know, the auction prices at Mannheim are. And here's a here's a chart that was highlighted yesterday, which is basically showing, you know, the black book uh, wholesale price index which again is a leading indicator for kind of what the consumer eventually sees. And the findings here is essentially that we've seen now, I think six qu- or six uh, weeks in a row of declines in wholesale prices. Uh, and we're now tracking 2022 for wholesale prices is now tracking below any year uh, over the last three years. And it kind of, you know, they tried to illustrate 2009 as well. Um, and just in general, just, I think the big takeaway there is that there's more, um, kind of deceleration or, or flat out deflation in used cars and cars in general coming down the pipe. Um, you take 10% uh, uh, or yeah, 10%, it's roughly like four, I think, percentage points of, of CPI. Uh, you know, you're shaving off almost like 40 basis points or so of, uh, of month over month uh, uh, inflation at some point. And, and that may get cut up, like you said, in two months versus one month. Um, but in general, it, it's acting as a negative force right. there. Yeah. Um, you know, continuing on the path of inflation, because I think it's the topic of du jour and for rightfully so, I think our whole view is, you know, it really started with the supply chain. You know, mm-hmm. if you go back yeah. to, um, along with what you said at the, at the onset, which was, you know, around the fiscal side, but, uh, you know, you go back, uh, you know, 30 years, right? And I think uh, there was a study done by the Center of Economic Policy Research. And what they tried to understand was how over the last three decades, You know, you had things like changes in employment, uh, where there was employment slack or tightness over the last three decades at various points, Um, yet you saw inflation remain in this kind of tight little band. Uh, And you alluded to it before, which was around um, the fact that, you know, whether it's technology, um, 
in many cases, this study found that it had a lot to do with uh, the supply chain as we became more uh, global in terms global. of yeah globalization. Yeah, bringing in supplies at a cheaper rate, where maybe the, the the costs inside your business were increasing, and instead of manufacturing it here, you exported or you imported and uh, exported your supply chain uh, uh, internationally, and that was essentially the ability to keep your cost down to the end consumer, which kept inflation in a moderate level. And then you go back and you look at when the supply chain costs and the supply chain bottlenecks were a function of many things. It was everything from, you know, keep six feet away from each other. You know, if you catch uh, COVID, you, you have to be out for two weeks. So you couldn't be at the ports to, um, you know, obviously China shutting down completely, uh, start and stopping. Um, to eventually the prices of you know fuel uh, increasing and diesel increasing, uh, all the way to things like you know once it started to build in terms of supply backlogs, what you saw were companies double triple ordering to ensure that they had it in stock. So yeah. it, it became this like virtuous cycle, and the rise in, in really the cost. I'm talking about like the exponential rise uh, where it went semi parabolic was in February of 2021, and just before that, you know I wouldn't say inflation wasn't rising, but it wasn't rising as drastically. You weren't seeing the, uh, before that, you didn't see any 0.5 month over month increase um, in inflation. And thereafter, you started to see 0.5, 0.7, 1, 1.1. And so I I do think it was a function of the supply chain that led to these rises because anything going on a 40 foot container that goes from, you know, 2000 to 22,000 ultimately has to cost more. Um, There's there's no way around. It's like a toll, right? If I, uh, if I have to go somewhere and I mean, ultimately it is a toll. Uh, and therefore, quote unquote, a tax, if you just wanted an analogy, an easy one um, to the consumer. And the important aspect of just bringing this up is this right here, which is showing the cost of a 40 foot container from from China to, let's just say, the port of Los Angeles. That is down almost, you know, 80 percent from the peak. Really, within the last several months, it's yeah. down 60, 70 percent. Um, keep in mind, that was when this is when rates were in 2 percent. Like we're talking about a Fed funds rate at 2 percent. We're not talking about the four and a half percent rate. So a lot of that supply chain, whether it was demand, but if you look at like volume and imports, they actually stayed pretty constant. You know, they actually didn't increase that much relative to 2019. When you look at 2021 numbers, um, it was more the bottlenecks, uh, in right. my opinion, and just some some data that caused some of that. So I'm bringing this up because if prices of the supply chain are coming down, um, we should think futuristically that the prices should at least stop rising altogether. Um, which they have in, in, in many areas, um, and or flat out decline. Now, one caveat to that is, and we, we followed the supply chain pretty closely early on, for different reasons, is really a lot of these companies decided to lock in multi-year contracts mm-hmm. um, at, let's say, $10,000 per container so that they could lock in two years in advance instead of getting the spot rate. And that's kind of now backfired on them where they still right. hold that 10000 but it's sitting at 3000 4000 5000 um, and so they still have this carrying cost. Um, therefore, the slowing effect of, of, let's say, consumer price may be lagged. Um, what's your take on supply chains and uh, maybe the implications there? I know you've talked about it as well. And, and uh, just to, to firm it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on supply chains, but um, I can offer a lot of an- anecdotal as well as empirical uh, data uh, to the conversation. I follow the Drury's um, yeah. Global World Index as well. And I mean, the rate that we've seen them decline uh, for containers, uh, you know, you used to we we're seeing one eh, percent here this week, maybe two percent on a good week, but now we're seeing drops in consecutive weeks of five, seven, ten percent. I mean, they're literally falling off a cliff, which, to your point, should be good for those 
you know, uh, goods producing companies that are importing back to the United States. Um, I worked for uh, Target for a number of years. I, I worked in logistics. So I know how the whole uh, kind of loop works from, you know, coming into the port, your goods are coming into the port on a container. Um, our truckers would, you know, pick, uh, pick up the goods. Then it goes to the distribution center. It gets unpacked. Then it gets palletized uh, to go to individual Target stores. Now, here's where what I found out so far, supply lines and how difficult it is to shut something down and then reopen it, which speaks to what we tried to do um, when we shut down the global economy and then you try to reopen it and think everything's going to go back to normal. Um, so I worked at a, um, a declining store. This one particular store um, was going from about B volume down to C volume just because of the demographics around it. Uh, and what we decided to do is put in a request uh, for lesser freight volume. We weren't selling it. Why are we still getting the B volume freight when we're doing C volume sales? And um, eventually the district manager went along with it with the forewarning. Uh, if things pick up, if you know the community around you, you know, should change and whatnot, it's gonna be really difficult when we have to turn the spigot on. It was the exact phrasing. It's easy to shut it off, but when you want to turn it back on, things tend to trip up. Um, and we, we, you know, that store did go through that, uh, for, fortunately did have a resurgence and whatnot. And that's kind of how I think about the whole supply lines and uh, globalization as well. It's just, it's incredibly difficult. Um, especially when it's a pandemic situation, you have a viral situation that's going to just, um, have a long lasting effect with people. You literally told the world, you got to stay X amount of feet away from each other. That doesn't go away when you reopen the economy. There's still those lingering thoughts uh, among people. As soon as you hear somebody cough, it's like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, we all go into that. Let me scoot over here. You know, right. we all go into that. Um, so there's still that lingering. And unfortunately, what that produces is a disruption in the labor force. Um, so while we wanted to you know, reopen things and we had, um, we had goods that needed to be shipped, we didn't have workers. Uh, we didn't have folks that were uh, willing or able to come back to the workforce, you know, in the midst of still unknowns about the future uh, state of the global economy. Um, so this created longer lasting uh, ramifications in the whole supply line chain. Now from a inflation perspective. So, I mean, the Fed can't do anything about supply, supply lines. It can't do anything about that other than trying to uh, go, you know, backdoor it through the demand side of the equation. Um, so, Although freight prices are coming down, shipping prices, spot prices are all coming down. What does that mean for CPI? What does that mean for PCE? And what does that mean to the Fed? And the reality that I've come to understand and you know, maybe have known for quite some time is unfortunately nothing. Spot prices going down don't mean anything. And this is why the Fed is essentially right. Spot prices, shipping prices, freight prices, they can all come down. You let me know when your retailers are willing to lower their prices then it means something. And that's the problem. That's what the Fed is, is, has rationalized to themselves is like, it's great. All that stuff coming down is great, but we're still 4X the savings, accrued savings, not the savings rate. That's come way down and is actually below the 10-year average. But the accrued savings still lets people go out there and pay the higher price. So there's no incentive right now. All gasoline prices, energy prices, input material, raw cost prices are all coming way down, 30 and 40% off their highs. When was the last time you saw Target do a buy one, get one free sale? You know, these retailers are still having elevated prices. I'm using Target as an example. Um, they haven't lowered their cost, their sticker price 
you know, on the shelf hasn't really come down incrementally. Inventory overhang be darned. You know, that's the stuff that came in at the wrong time. That's a perfect example of, you know, the supply line glut where retailers that have seasonal goods that were supposed to come in in January didn't get there until March or April. And the, the Easter stuff that they were supposed to get in March and April didn't get there until June, July. That's stuff that's not, as a retailer, there's nothing you could do about that. You order six months out in advance. This wasn't a fault of Target. This wasn't a fault of, uh, of Walmart, this inventory overhang. It's the fault of the supply lines. So that stuff gets discounted and it, it, it you know, makes headlines so far as, well, that's disinflationary. But it's the, it's the everyday stuff. It's your six pack of Coca-Cola or Budweiser, whatever you like. It's your Frito-Lay chips that are still, you know, some 25 to 30% above sticker price that they were in the pre-pandemic, you know, uh, economy. So supply lines and all that stuff work themselves out over time. But the only real way to get retailers and get that MSRP down is is to hurt demand. It it literally is the uh, only way. So I get why the Fed, you know, is feels it needs to do what it is doing. If it was me, if I was, you know... uh, in, in the chairman's position, which never, please, you know, don't put me up for that role. I would never uh, talk about the punching bag of the world. Um, I would let time, I would let the market, you know, everybody complained. Now, here's the thing. Everybody complains when the Fed steps in to buy you the economy, you know, and uh, doing quantitative easing. I mean, we run to them for help, but then we complain for the next decade about quantitative <laughs> easing. Um, but when the Fed is forcing us to take our medicine, so to speak, um, because of all of the, you know, free money and liquidity, um, you know, people are okay with that. You know, the, the, the bears and the punditry, um, they're okay with, you know, finally, you know, enforcing the, you know, the medicine taking when it hurts the economy and we're supposed to get a hard landing. A recession is a normal part of the business cycle. They're okay with that. I'm not. If that's the outcome, that's where I deviate from understanding the Fed's policy. If the, if the policy has a greater than 50% or the policy have a greater than 50% probability of pushing you into a recession, there's something wrong with the policy mandate and there's something wrong with the tools to address whether it's inflation or labor. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so I, I tend to agree with with most of that. The um, the, the only thing I, I, I push back slightly or, or question or, or think about is the, the – so – the MSRP that we're talking about uh, in terms of just the price of goods mm-hmm. and not necessarily coming down. I guess the bigger question is, does that price of Fritos have to come down or simply move sideways for the next right. month? Good month. Yeah. Because if it, if it goes, you know, you, I think you've seen plenty of the, you know, the waterfall charts that show mm-hmm. 0.2% um, month over month inflation readings, whether it's CPI, PCE, core, non-core, um, over the next, say, six months, if you get 0.2, 0, somewhere in that ballpark, um, you get overarching inflation in those four components right. um, anywhere from, you know, actually sub two to as high as, you know, 4.2. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on which one you're, you're looking at, but all kind of a lot of progress being done. And the question is, is, you know, that feed, that, that feed, uh, you know, the loop of the supply chain either declining dramatically, which isn't forcing price increases, you get this plateauing mm-hmm. of, so, so, the strange part there is, you know, if demand is actually hit, yet you could make an argument that you could essentially do nothing from here on out in terms of Fed funds and probably get this zero to maybe point with time. Yeah, just the natural with time. 
then what happens to the inflation rate should demand actually come down, forcing an onslaught of liquidations, which is why you're starting to hear the conversation around deflation. Because it's not that hard to, to, drink up, to drum up some math and right. figure out like, no joke, in a year from now, you may be in a deflationary scare, which completely alters the one, the viewpoint of, let's say, the markets, but then the viewpoint of the Fed. And, you know, I think we get back in the seesaw effect where, and we, we've been talking about this internally, which is, you know, at the very, or like the start of, of uh, let's just say COVID, you had the prices of, you know, you had a lot of bull whipping going on, whether it's, you know, first for uh, physical goods inside of our homes where the prices went up and the demand for that went up and then all went to zero, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you could even just say negative because it, it's, there's no demand for some of those things. Then you had like obviously online and some other things, uh, demand shoot through the roof. People are talking about 10-year pull forwards and such. Then you're seeing um, the supply chain costs go up and to dramatic levels and then come all the way back down. You have seen the Fed response be as aggressive as ever. Um, the question is, is are they going to have the bullwhip effect as well, given we've, we've already seen almost like two to three stages of this across physical, digital, um, supply chains. You know, we've seen it through the entire ecosystem, airfares. Um, that's where I question where it, it's almost, it almost seems inevitable if you, if you take everything before it. Yep. That there was a bullwhip. Um, it seems somewhat inevitable that there's going to be a bullwhip again, mm -hmm. um, which is going to be the complete opposite side of this. And and the question is, is when, if, how? A lot of the data that I think we just showed uh, and talked Ooh. about, which is, you know, used cars and 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 uh, some other things, is is showing that. I think if you go back a year ago and you read the comments around uh, forty foot container costs, yeah, there was literally the concept that this was going to stay elevated and never get back to the levels seen pre COVID. And nobody and would was, come back to work. Everybody would, you know, temporary. We'd have a I, I mean, all the, the commentary around jobs and shipping, it was, yeah, it's just prisoner of the moment thought processes. <laughs> yeah, some of it is rational. I get it. Because there's no incentive for the carriers to reduce their costs if they can't, if they don't have to, but they're being forced to. Um, because, you know, now there's uh, more capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, productivity is now flowing. Right. Uh, what people don't talk about is the order book for new ships is actually at record levels. Um, so these carriers actually ordered out multi-years thinking that this was going to be a structural problem. Right. Um, I remember that from last year, actually, I saw that report. And those are non-cancelable. This is like yep. Boeing Airbus. You ordered right. this plane. Right. <laughs> Unless you're China. So, yeah. yeah, then you can cancel everything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so let, let's move on. Cause I think, so uh, to summarize like the inflationary area, I think it's, you know, it's kind of this back and forth, um, of somewhat, it's more of a timing thing, really. And it is. I, I, you're and hearing it more and more. And, uh, had, go for it. Go for it. Something that you had touched on at the very beginning of our discussion was, you know, politics and things like that. Um, I, I've always, uh, you know, why don't we let the markets clear? Why don't we let the economy take care of itself? I mean, I, I've often said, when the consumers had enough, they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this will take care of itself. We'll devolve into a recession. We'll clean up and we'll emerge, you know, into a new expansion cycle. What I think has gotten so politicized over, I mean, I'm, I'll be 46, so I've heard it for at least the last 20 years that I've been able to understand the concept of uh, the economic divide, you know, the, the, the social classes and economic, uh, um, just the wealth gaps uh, in our society. And we tend to think of the Fed's job as being a means to at least stabilize the lower decile income worker um, and, and make sure that the wealth gap just doesn't explode. Um, and that has become central to the punditry of, you know, Fed watchers, if you will, and centers around, you know, job creation and inflation. 
to the extent that you, we've heard time and time again uh, this year during FOMC uh, press conferences about this is this is more difficult. This inflation is more impactful. It's it's felt to a greater degree amongst the lower income decile workers. Um, but I, I've always pushed back on that political aspect because uh, no matter what the Fed has done historically, the wealth gap just widens over time. So even that aspect of you know, well, the Fed needs to do this for the you know the lower wage workers and. Um, uh, you know the, the those who are considered you know poverty level. I've I've, I've said to myself I've watched the Fed for the last twenty five years. No matter whether they were injecting liquidity or they were taking it away, the wealth got, the wealth gap has just completely continued to widen. So that just elevates my point of let the market let the economy clear. It will take care of itself. When the consumers had enough, they will let you know they've had enough. Why does the Fed have to intervene? There was actually a Harvard study that I read not that long ago, which which. Uh, the, the hypothesis was, does, you know, um, lower rates actually support uh, a faster decline in inflation than, than opposite. And the rationale was really, and, and there was some actual data behind it and some research behind it, but it was, it, it's the thought of, you know, to solve some of these problems, it takes capital. You know, I think, you know, take housing, for example, there's an inventory problem. Right. And in order to build more homes, you need yeah. access to cheap capital. Um, and it speeds that up, not slows it down, uh, or now it's slowing it down uh, in terms of raising rates, because that's ultimately, you know, the stickier component of inflation today. Why would you make it harder to build uh, new homes, yeah. which is ultimately the cause, right? Demand was there mm -hmm. um, and for different reasons, but really the supply is at multi-decade lows. Yeah, um, it's, it's like a doom loop. Housing is in its own doom loop uh, where it took the pandemic to realize the doom loop it's in so far as house, uh, supply versus demand. And what would otherwise be ever appreciating prices because of that dynamic? Sure. Yeah. So let, let's let's skip to a, the mm -hmm. other five uh, <laughs> component <laughs> of this conversation. We'll go quicker here. Uh, I think inflation and kind of the thoughts around it. Yeah. Uh, we summarized a lot, but Top let's just talk mind. about yeah. Let's talk about the economy in terms of the shape it's in. Uh, I'll let you start off, and then I'll, sure. I'll add some stuff. Yeah, I'll give you my broad strokes. Um, I think the economy is very stable. I think we've entered a period of accelerating growth from uh, the June, I think we kind of troughed, or uh, I should say, uh, you, know, you look at GDP, it tells you that we're in a recession. But when you look at, you know, the specific components that the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at, you know, they're all in fantastic shape, and they've only grown uh, real income, real retail sales, uh, industrial production, employment. I mean, some of these numbers are, you know, uh, above average GDP level uh, metrics. Um, but we did see slowing uh, in that second quarter. But since then, where PMI seemingly have troughed in the second quarter, we've seen new order growth uh, in the ISM manufacturing. We've seen it in the regional manufacturers as well. And the good news is when you get those reports, you also get the prices paid components, mm -hmm. yep. which are falling off a cliff now for two consecutive months. Um, so from that inflationary <laughs> standpoint, that's looking good and sustainable. Um, but I mean, you just the job growth is incredible. Uh, we're seeing some, uh, the wage growth is still very strong. It's not keeping up with the pace of CPI right now, uh, but we're creating a, a, about 400,000 jobs over the last six months. And we're averaging 400,000 job creation a month over the last six months. Uh, the, good and, the good and bad there is uh, obviously we still have a very tight labor market. Uh, right now, according to the jolts, there's literally two job openings for every meet. <laughs> so I can work twice <laughs> if I wanted to. People um, were doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
overall, I think the economy is is humming along. You look at retail sales, you look at consumption, and we have never had a recession where you've had annualized retail sales 8% or better. And we're running more than 9% right now on a 12-month annualized basis. And people, you know, will, will you know, like to throw stones at that and say, well, what about real, you know, adju inflation-adjusted retail sales? Even inflation-adjusted is up a tick on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, so, you know, the, the U.S. economy is a consumption-based economy. And if the consumer is healthy, they've got a strong balance sheet, um, they're responsible. Uh, and that's the other thing you want to, I mean, I hear and I see through the New York Fed's quarterly household debt and, debt and credit card uh, balance uh, report that, you know, some leveraged credit uh, default rates are, are starting to climb and whatnot, which is normal. That, in my opinion, is just mean reverting. Um, you're always going to, you know, have those pockets. But we went from a period where there were no defaults and now we're getting some. I mean, there's always going to be some. Um, so I, I look at the economy and I say it's very healthy. I mean, you can't tell me eight, nine percent annualized retail sales is anything but. You can't tell me that we're you're growing four hundred thousand jobs a month is anything but. And you know, folks say, well, that's a lagging indicator. You know, employment's a lagging indicator. I'm like, what? Well, when is it not then? Was it a, a lagging indicator in January, February, right. March, June? I mean, when is it not going to be a lagging? At some point, you got to realize the trend is is strong and you got to get off of that excuse if you're you know part of the punditry is it a perfect economy no it never was it never will be um we also have to get away from this notion that you know the fed and the federal government um could ever achieve a perfect economic situation for us um better is always you know on the right track yeah yeah to, to add to that i think you, you took uh the, the 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 growth side of the economy and, and a little bit about what i'm going to talk about for a second which is um you know, around the core health, meaning for us, it's really around, and always before you're questioning whether, you know, a certain problem is potentially going to be a, another crisis. It's really, what's the health, what's the foundational element yeah. talked about jobs. Um, and, you know, obviously there could be layoffs in the future, but jobs now is, is, you know, people are securing more jobs, therefore more income and, and more strength and stability, uh, for the economy. But next to that, and you, you alluded to it before, which is the savings, uh, for the consumer. So we like to think of, you know, the consumer balance sheet, the uh, housing market, it's usually your biggest asset, your biggest liability um, in the economy, and also the corporate kind of earnings and, and margins and earnings season and things like that. Now, savings, I'll just pull up a, a chart here, which is personal savings, and it shows a 24-month cumulative uh, personal savings total. $1.9 trillion as of July uh, is probably maybe a tick lower than that, but probably pretty much on par. You can see how it went from you know one trillion to really almost three trillion. Uh, this is aggregate, right? So some of the stuff you were talking about before is bank data, which is arguably just as important, or in some cases more important. Um, and it, it really, just to summarize, there is that the consumer has a massive sum of savings still, yep. um, and that is ultimately a foundation that the right. consumer can sit on. Number two is really around housing, and the way we like to think about it is the quality of the mortgage originations. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. the amount of you know uh, uh, um, you know equity in these homes. You know, two thousand eight. You think about it. People were buying a one percent uh, down payment and you know ninety nine percent leverage and you know one move, one rates. Yeah, one percent move in in your house and you're ultimately underwater. Um, and today, you know, there's over a trillion dollars of, of of equity in these homes. And again, we we know things can evaporate quickly, but at, at the same time, that's a really good starting point if we're talking about foundational elements here. Seventy percent of mortgage originations are that seven sixty credit score or above. In yeah. 2004, 5, 6, that was roughly 20, 25%. So it's been flipped on its head in terms of the, the quality of the buyer. Uh, and then lastly, I know it's lagging, 
but anecdotally, just hearing companies, you know, last quarter, there was roughly, you know, whether it's 7% sales growth and 13% earnings growth um, for the S&P 500 constituents. Anecdotally, you've actually heard some strengthening uh, over the last month. There was a, there was a bunch of conferences that happened. Uh, and some of the, the areas that, let's say, took up more of a pause, let's say a quarter ago, are seeing some inflections. Uh, I think it's a function of, you know, Ukraine war began, small business, mid-sized business took a pause, um, didn't want to take on new tools, new products, new things. Uh, and they have kind of, you know, reassessed and they're, they're like, okay, this is part of the new normal. Um, and you've seen some of that anecdotally. So I'm just adding that just to, uh, you know, attach to the growth components that you just talked about, which I think ultimately shine a fairly constructive light on the health of the economy heading into anything that should be worse or better in the future as we move that direction. Um, I also, yeah. I, one of the key metrics that I always look at, it's like just a broad, I'm a U.S. household. You know, if I'm a U.S. household, what's, what, what is my, um, my household debt service payments as mm -hmm. a percent of disposable personal income? And that metric is, is literally, I mean, since they, they've been tracking it since the late 1970s, and other than the absolute low in the pandemic, um, it's at the best levels in 40 years. Essentially saying, you know, once you strip out what my monthly bills are, I have the best amount, you know, the quantity of disposable spending that I've ever had since the 1970s. Yeah, it's just hard to argue that, you know, the Fed's going to do what it's going to do. The, you know, the, the uncertainty around the Ukraine-Russian uh, war will have hiccups in energy prices and things like that. We just had five dollars a gallon as a national average at the price, you know, the price at the pump, and we we went right through it, you know, with climbing retail sales. And it goes back to the household corporate balance sheets. Yeah, forget about it. I mean, they're in fa fantastic shape too. Um, but those household balance sheets, I mean, that's the lifeline of this economy. And if they're wrong and they believe that they have a, a coming, and if they don't have one from this job that they can get another job, they're going to spend. Paychecks get spent here in the United States. Yeah, cool. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and gas is at 378 today, uh, and that's with uh, yeah. Hurricane Ian. Um, next is uh, you know sediment. Um, I have this one chart. Um, I don't know if you saw it yesterday, which shows the amount of option traders spending uh, a yeah. bucket load on protection. Yeah. So, so here's a chart on for options, and I know this is like right up your wheelhouse in a sense in terms of just. Uh, part of the market, right? Um, and just in general, you know, we're showing a chart of basically the S&P 500 and uh, the uh, retail put option premiums uh, in terms of option uh, demand relative to the size of the market. So as a percent of stock market uh, capitalization, and it shows 4.5%. Uh, essentially today, March 20 of 2020, you could argue the <laughs> scariest of times, you weren't going to the grocery store um, or anything. That was also 4.5%. Uh, and then you go to, uh, you know, October of 20 uh, or 2008, 5.4%. If you looked at this chart, there's only really three spikes going back, right. you know, 25 years. Um, and it was really these three times and they're both kind of equivalent. So the, the takeaway there is not necessarily, is this the low or is, is, is that the low? It's more, you know, sentiment is a reaction to fear um, or it's, you know, it's essentially the summary of fear, I guess. Um, and just your take on, on sentiment today and how that could potentially be the catalyst. It's weird to say catalyst, but maybe the the buffering of of um, stock market weakness uh, going forward. Given everything we just talked about, which was right. I think the, the first two sections, inflation being there's a lot of stuff showing inflation decelerating and or outright deflation. There's 
um, you know, going sideways for many months, hopefully in the future, all the way to the health of the consumer and the housing and the economy being in a pretty good shape uh, heading into this. And then sentiment, what seems to be across the board, uh, I know you can nitpick and pull other indicators as well, but uh, sentiment being kind of like a third leg of this stool. Um, what's your views on sentiment broadly? Any stats you got? Yeah. So, I mean, whether I'm looking at consumer sentiment or investor sentiment, um, they're all, you know, uh, close to the basement level or just coming out of the basement. The, the consumer is coming, you know, just out of the basement level. We've actually seen, uh, I think, two months now of uh, University of Michigan consumer sentiment rising. Uh, inflation expectations are falling. Uh, consumer confidence had a big jump uh, based on the last conference board's update just, just yesterday. That makes investor sense. Sentiment, yeah. S&P data that I was talking about. Yeah. Investor sentiment, whole different situation, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, based on that chart that you were just showing in AAII survey, as well as investor intelligence survey. I mean, they're all in the dumpsters. Uh, investor leverage, whether, you know, what, depending on the cohort of investor class that we're talking about, whether it's hedge funds or long equity portfolios, um, they all extremely low leverage. Nobody wants to, you know, uh, be over leveraged in an environment where the, the Fed is, quote unquote, removing liquidity um, from, from market systems. So when I see a chart like the one that you show where, where we have those massive spikes in protection, uh, it automatically just it rings in my ears. Uh, the old saying, you know, from Warren Buffett, you know, or, or maybe it was Warren Buffett, maybe not. When there's blood in the streets, you know, that's what that chart just automatically, you know, just see a big when there's blood in the streets, you know. Yeah. Um, and usually these are signs of, of troughing, if not basing points uh, in markets, as well as in the economy when it comes to consumer sentiment. Um, I think the biggest issue with this particular cycle is that while you have consumer sentiment still in you know relatively basement levels, you have retail sales doing this. So it, 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 it re- yeah, it, this is the first time that's really ever happened uh, where you have that kind of juxtaposition. Um, so it forces you to realize that this, there there is some nuanced differences about this time. Nobody likes to say this time is different, but the reality is every time is different. The circumstances are always different from one cycle to the next, but human behavior really isn't. So this is not a pandemic. This is not a great financial crisis, but to the point of that chart, people are, human behavior is still reacting to the uncertainty the same way. Um, so, you know, from a structural standpoint uh, in the markets, I don't participate in that fashion. I don't, I've never been of the opinion. Um, and to be clear, this is just my opinion based on 22 years of experience as an investor. I've never been of the opinion that hedging um, is a good idea. I, I've never found that to be a good idea. Um, I echo you. Well, I, I've always thought thought about it through the lens of, okay, if I'm hedging, something about whatever's going on is scaring me. So I'm going to open up a new position and think I can manage that well. Like, the logic is is rather you know counterintuitive there. Um, secondly, it's a time-based bet, right? It's a hedge, so I'm not going to have it on forever. Do I think I'm going to be able to time the in and out of that new position while I'm already in a fearful state? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we could just go down a rat hedging is just a, a counterproductive process. The actual data on hedges collected by the CBOE says that 80% plus of hedges fail to meet their intended you know purpose. Um, so, you know, charts like that sentiment overall, I think is getting better for consumers, um, but it's only worsening with price. As price of the indices are going down, you see sentiment getting worse, leverage getting worse, and it's all tied to, you know, one thing. When is the Fed going to signal some type of pivot? Um, so I, I think that there are going to be a lot of folks that are leaning so heavily as they were in that chart. 
to one side of the boat with that sentiment, when the tide goes out, you know, they, they basically run onto dry land and they're not going to sail away with the ship that brings in the new uh, bull market and uh, strengthening economy. Um, I, I've always been an optimist. Uh, that's. Uh, yeah, I think you have to approach. be. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think you have to be in this uh, profession. Yeah, um, I, doomsdaying and you know just worrying about you know your your P and L and your portfolio. Uh, if you're an investor, invest. Give it more time. The market tells you what it's going to do over time. It goes from the lower left hand corner to the upper right hand corner. You want to be on that ship. In the meantime, you pay the price of volatility. Yeah, yep. that, that that's time. Now let's talk about valuation. You had a, I'll pull up your tweet. Um, oh, not your tweet, but uh, let's see where it is. Here you go. So, you know, there's a, there's a couple different um, ways to look at it. You know, I think what you hear anecdotally is, you know, today's PE is, you know, call it 17 uh, and average PEs are 15. We're not even close and, and CPI and, and kind of all the adjustments you can make to many of those. I, for one, uh, think, you know, if you strip out, and there's plenty of data around that, you know, you strip out the big companies, the the, the, the biggest companies in the index, i.e. Apple, 28 times, uh, has a large effect on that average these days yeah. relative to before. Um, you know, I, where the index is highly concentrated today. I think that's been well articulated. I don't think people have thought about like the second, third order effect of that, which is that, you know, that also affects <laughs> the, the average PE of, of these indices. And if you, if you strip out the uh, the top 10, which, you know, you could arguably say, why would you strip out the, the top 10? They're obviously big and strong and and well-liked. Um, but if you do, you get obviously another 490 companies uh, and you get an average PE across that of 13 times, which is well below the average. Um, that's interesting. There's other ways to look at it. And I think that's how you looked at it here, which is how PEs troughed, you know, trough mm -hmm. PEs, in addition to the derating cycle that takes place during, you know, derating periods. So just share like yeah. those, those sweets you made, what you meant and, uh, and how we should, we should uh, perceive this. Yeah. So firstly, when we, when we hear about, well, you know, the market is not going to bottom until the PE is 14 or 15, because that's basically the average of uh, past you know, recessionary trough points for the S&P 500 PE ratio. Um, the reality is we're always using a small sample size, right? Because there's only been a handful yeah. you know, of, of recession. From a statistical data standpoint, that's just a bad idea. The smaller sample size, the less significant or relevant you know, the, the data that you're studying. Um, the other thing is, you know, when people talk, well, the average P, how often do we hit the average, right? Never. <laughs> we never actually hit the average. So, you know, from a former PE, a trailing PE ratio standpoint, you would have been upset if you had been waiting to allocate capital until the PE got to that average. The other, what I found more useful is because when you look at, PE ratios, they do trend higher over time. The argument or pushback to that is that, well, we haven't actually hit or stayed above the 2000 or the dot-com period PE multiple. Um, but still, if you do a mean regression trend line, they travel higher over time. PEs expand over time. Whether it's CAPE or just your general forward-looking 12-month PE ratio, they both travel higher over time. So if you have a, a, a static component, right? We're talking about PEs. If the PE is never constant, it's always static. It's always moving higher over time. And it's just kind of um, capturing energy for the next push in the average five or 10 year PE multiple. Um, if it can't be constant, then we have to look at it a different way. Um, so the secondary way that I was looking at it is, okay, if we're going through a derating cycle, a correction, even a recession from peak to trough, what is the typical 
or average derating of the multiple. How many multiple points do we derate, you know, uh, from past cycles? And I found that the average is about seven from peak to trough. And this enables you to accept the reality, which is PE multiples expand. And it validates the fact that using an average is just not useful. There's no utility in using the average PE ratio from past trough cycles for a static component. Um, so that's kind of how I, I came to you know, surmise that it's better. The greater utility for capital allocation is to recognize that the typical derating cycle is about seven points. And lo and behold, from peak to trough in this particular cycle, and I'm using a forward PE multiple, we started at 22. We got down to a peak of 15, uh, trough of 15, seven. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, stay there or and, and bounce and, and what have you, but this gives me more utility. All I really want to do is formulate a model for capital allocation. Uh, I can't do that looking backwards at past average P.E. ratio troughs. I can use that accepting the principle that P.E. multiples expand over time. So where's my top? And if the typical derating is seven basis points, if it gets down there, I can allocate capital. Makes sense. I like it. Yeah, that's why uh, I wanted you to to share your not only the data but uh, and the takeaway, uh, which again correlates well with what, what your average rating cycle was. Um, uh, you know, next I think last little section here is you know we've gone through inflation data, the economy sentiment, uh, a view on inflation or on valuations. Lastly, is you know the Fed um, can they pause? Should they? Would they? Could they? I think we've we've thought about it a little bit here. Um, I'll let you go first and kick off and then I'll, I'll maybe add some stuff. Okay. Um, based, I'm data dependent. All my theses and, and, and models are based on the data. Yeah. Um, and, you know, based on what I've aggregated and analyzed, I think the Fed is at a good place where they can start messaging uh, a, a softer tone. Um, and, and the market wants to know, the market likes definitives. It doesn't like uncertainty. So all the Fed really has to do is start tempering its message, where it's been extremely hawkish, aggressive, uh, and acted upon that. Uh, any deviation from that, any softer tone, uh, will start to be received well by the market. Uh, is that a pivot in my books? Yes. Anything the Fed does to shift you know, dynamically is a pivot. It doesn't mean that they have to cut rates. Right. There's just various, you know, just like anything else, there's nuances. I think the, I mean, there's no definition behind pivot, right? When it comes to the Fed, I, I think it's all abstract and we have to consider various forms of what it means for the Fed to pivot. I don't think that they should pause uh, until at least December. I know they only have two meetings left. I think they go at this one. The market's priced it in. Market pa already... pauses in, pauses in um, no more rate hikes as opposed to 25 or 25 um, or 50 or 50. <laughs> So I think, a, yeah, your I think definition they, of pause is, is zero. Correct. No further rate hike. Um, so if they go 50 or 75 at the next meeting, I think that's ample enough, you know, to, to pause there, review the incoming data, which we will have the CPI print before the next meeting. Right. So they'll have that one. And then before the December, the final meeting of the year, they'll have another one, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, if all the data is that we're aggregating high frequency or otherwise, it does play out in the CPI and PCE readings that will solidify the disinflationary trend and it will give the Fed enough cover, you know, to where it, 
can fully say, now we want to see how things take effect in the economy, as if they haven't already to one degree or another. But there's always that prevailing notion that the Fed's policies have a lag time. I don't know about you, but as soon as they started hiking rates, we saw yields go up, we saw mortgage rates go up, and we saw immediate impact. And in fact, um, there's been studies from the New York University that says, you know, in, in past decades, that's been true, uh, that there's been a, at least a six to nine month lag before you see the, the impact of federal uh, Fed policy in the economy. Uh, but since the turn of the century and since quantitative easing, we've seen much more rapid uh, response from the economy and or financial market. So a pause, I think, after the November, but it is uh, dependent upon the incoming data. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll just summarize that as well. And look, I, 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 I don't know about the pace of which they need to go forward. Uh, I don't think they have to do too much more. I think all the data that we've already shown has, has supported the notion that a lot of work has been done. And I think you just alluded to it, whether it's the, you know, the yields, everything in the real economy has already adjusted. Um, and the only thing that's lagging is the actual federal fed fund rate. Um, and so it's whether, you know, if you're them and this is what, you know, people have to just be cognizant of is until you're actually ready to pause or pivot, whatever you, we want to frame that as, uh, you shouldn't show any form of weakness. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I think over the last several weeks, uh, you know, there's there's functions of like the U.S. dollar and such, um, and the implications there, what, how that could eventually spill back, anyways. Uh, so they have they have to stay cognizant of that. I do think you know they're at a good point where they could pause. And now the question is, is when do you signal it? Um, yeah. Do you wait another month and let what you just has have done flow through the economy? Um, I think we got a little bit, yes, or, or like over the weekend, I, I, like a lot of this stuff is, is structured and signaled there. Uh, they communicate internally. Um, you better believe any sort of, uh, headlines are, are, are purposeful for the most part. Yep. Um, yeah. we, we saw this and, and, and yep. Fed Evans basically say he's getting a little nervous about going yep. too far. <laughs> I, I'm assuming again, that was that the rhetoric over the last week has been that exact comment. So understanding that inside that room, there is a single individual that at least thinks that is an important signal. Right. It doesn't mean a pivot or anything. It just means that they are aware. Uh, and I think that's an important purposeful signal um, that we should be paying attention to. Now, again, what does that mean in terms of how and when and, and if? Um, uh, for me, I just thought that was an important sign. Again, I am an optimist. So I am looking for, you know, I understand that bias as well. Uh, I am looking for those little uh, nuggets of, of optimism. But I also think what we just went through this exercise uh, showed enough of evidence that inflation is being tamed, whether it's through the real economy and the Fed's work kind of being done uh, or um, having a real impact. Uh, two is the valuation component. You talked about sentiment being pretty weak. I don't know. It just, you know, you go back and you think about, you know, uh, when are there great opportunities to invest? And this isn't recommendations from any of us, but it's just simply um, a lot of the damage, I think, has gone a little bit too far relative to the health of the economy and the valuations and such, and, and some of the stuff you're hearing from the companies. I wanted to give you a, another minute to just share mm -hmm. where people can find more about you. Sure. Um, I know we've been running for a long time here, and, uh, and, and you know, there's a hurricane out I'm there, and we got stuff to do. But <laughs> yes. in general, in general uh, I just wanted to give you, you know, uh, a moment to find more about you. Yeah, um, I uh, manage and, and direct uh, phenomgroup.com. Uh, we started that in 2017. Um, it's, a, it's a great place. I, I came from the sell side analytics world. I did macro research reports as well as stock specific research reports for hedge funds and institutional investors from 2011 to 2015. Um, and we got acquired. My first company got acquired. So I had like a two year non-compete. And then we were able to restart um, as phenomgroup.com. So every week uh, we offer a macro, what I call a macro market research report.
start focusing on the disciplines of investing, um, technicals, fundamentals, and quantitative data. Um, so every week you get a really detailed analytical report um, you know, that basically covers all your bases as an investor. Um, and it also just teaches uh, you know, one key principle, which is um, the more time you have in the market, the better uh, opportunities you're going to have to profit from the market's long-term trend. Uh, investing, if it was all about the IQ, all read and study the same books and we get right. the same results, but it's not. It's about, you know, your emotional capacity and how you handle situations in the economy, let alone it, such as they are here in 2022. Uh, on, on Twitter, you can find me at Seth CL, um, which was the first domain name of our uh, company that got acquired. It was Capital Ladder Advisory Group. So the CL has stood. Um, but yeah, you get a, a also we do a... a a weekly, what I call state of the market at Phenom Group. And it's, it's a video podcast where, uh, once again, you know, during the course of the week, you know, you kind of want to have those touch points with the market for about 45 minutes of really strong analytics. Again, technicals, fundamentals, and quantitative data. Um, and that's delivered every Thursday. Our macro market research report is every Sunday. And uh, we have a really good community of investors um, from all walks of life, uh, retail investors up to institutionals. Uh, in fact, some of our work is white papered by Wells Fargo, Credit Suisse, Hightower Advisors, and a number of other institutions. So that's where you can find me. <laughs> yeah, I'll put that stuff on the on the show notes. Um, but with that, Seth, I wanted to uh, let you go. Um, Thank you. Appreciate you having on. And, and yeah, well, we have to do this again. Be safe there in Miami. <laughs> yeah, same with you, Seth. Take All care. right, man. Good stuff.